Well, shalom, y'all. <coughs> that's, a, <coughs> that's a favorite colloquialism of mine. It goes back to a time. I went to Houston, Texas about 30 years ago. I found one good thing there, married her, and got her out as quick as I could. And that's my wife, Carol, over there that I met in Houston. Well, one of those nights, we were romancing in Houston. It was one of those typical Houston romantic nights, you know, pouring down rain. We're standing under an umbrella, and she looked at me with stars in her eyes, and she said, I'll go anywhere with you as long as they talk y'all. Well, at that point, Carol had lived pretty much everywhere. She was born in Dallas, went to school in Austin, had lived in Midland, lived out in East Texas, was living in Houston. She'd never been outside the state of Texas, but why would you want to be, you know? Until we married, and a few years after that, I moved her a little bit east of Texas, and we lived on Mount Carmel in Israel for four years. And... uh, So when you came into our beautiful home overlooking the Mediterranean Sea on Mount Carmel, one of the first things that people noticed was a plaque on the wall that said, Shalom, y'all. So my plan tonight is to take you through a few highlights of the Torah. Now, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And the Torah has had a bad rap because most of you grew up in church where you were told Torah means law. And then you were told we're not under the law, we're under grace. So basically, you were told, oh, don't worry about the Jew book. We got the new book. All right. Well, but that's a horrible teaching because it's a bad translation. The word Torah doesn't mean law. The word Torah means instruction. It's God's instruction that he gave lovingly to a people that he wanted to set apart for himself and that he wanted to bless and love and prosper. Y'all know anybody that wants God to bless them and love them and prosper? Most of y'all probably, right? Well, here's the good news. Um, he gave this Torah to a people he calls Israel. The good news is that those of you who were not born into this family, I assume, since you're here on a Wednesday night, you've been grafted into it. Now, Moshe Dayan once said, anybody who's willing to live in this country should be allowed to live in this country. Anybody who's willing to be connected with Israel should be welcome, all right? Here's an amazing thing. According to Jewish law, my wife and I have five children. And according to Jewish law, we could disinherit all five of them. But if we adopted a child, it's outside our purview. We could not disinherit an adopted child. So you see, in a sense, those of you who are adopted into the family have it better than those of us who were born into the family, all right? And so what that tells me is that the Torah is God's loving instruction for His people, for all His people. So just as much as you're as much a part of Israel as I am, and my last name is Cohen, all right? Cohen is a Hebrew word, Kohen, it means priest. It means I'm a descendant of Aaron. You can't get any more Jewish than Cohen, all right? But you being grafted in, you by choosing to be connected to this people called Israel, you're as much a part of Israel as I am, and... The Torah is as much for you as it is for me. I'll let y'all chew on that a little bit. I got to tell you, when we came in, we were told there's an awful lot of activity going on here tonight. And that's a very good thing. Our congregation, our synagogue, meets in a a Baptist church in Bedford. And and that church is very much like this one. There's always stuff going on, all right? Now, the Hebrew word for synagogue, all right, first of all, let me back up. Synagogue, synagogue, is, is a word that means congregation. All right. It means a gathering of people. Y'all know what a church is? Remember we grew up, they told us this lie. They said, here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up and see the people. That's a lie. 
This is the church. This is just a building. Alright? The church is the people. The congregation is the church. The congregation is the synagogue. Alright? And, and it means the same thing. So synagogue, church, same thing. It means the people who gather together. The Hebrew word for a synagogue is Beit Knesset. It means the house of meeting. It's the building where the people meet. All right? and, and the Beit Knesset in ancient times wasn't just where the congregation met to worship. It was where everything went on. It was the community center, if you will. So it's good that you've got things going on here besides just what's happening in this room. That's in keeping with ancient style. All right? So tonight we're going to do a... A race through the Torah, all right? Uh, studying the whole, studying the Torah is a one-year cycle. You go into any synagogue in the world, and on every Saturday, every synagogue is reading the same portion from the Torah. Kind of like Baptist churches. You know, you go to any Baptist church, and every preacher, every Baptist preacher is preaching on the same verse of Scripture every week, right? Not even. No. But in the synagogue, there's unity in that. Anyway, but we're going to study the whole Torah in about 25 minutes, 30 minutes, okay? Um, then I'll be back in two weeks, and in two weeks we're going to look uh, at a very special day on the Jewish calendar, and we're going to look at the entire Jewish calendar and about how Yeshua, which is Jesus' name that his mother called him, all right? Yeshua. Everybody say Yeshua. Feels good, doesn't it? All right. That's what, Jesus never heard the word Jesus. I mean, if Mary had said, Jesus, time for dinner, he'd have wondered who was coming. He knew it wasn't him. His name was Yeshua. And now, I grew up in Tupelo, Mississippi, and I came to faith at a young age at a Baptist church. People say, how'd you get saved? Hanging around Christians. That'll do it. That's the best way, all right? But the, remember the first time I heard the Christmas story, and they're reading out of, out of Matthew, and they said, and an angel appeared to Joseph and said, you shall call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people. That made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. I mean, if he's going to be a boy child and he's going to save a lot of people, why didn't they name him Billy Graham? You know, that it didn't make sense. Why would they name him Jesus? But the name Jesus, although it's a nice sounding name, the angel probably spoke to Joseph in a language he could have understood, not English, Hebrew or Aramaic. And in Hebrew, he would have said, you will call his name Yeshua because he'll save his people. And that makes perfectly good sense because Yeshua means God saves. All right. So that's his name. Anyway, so when I come back in two weeks, we're going to look at the Jewish calendar and, and how Yeshua fulfills all of the seven annual feasts that we're in the midst of celebrating right now, as a matter of fact. This coming Shabbat, Friday night and Saturday, is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the most solemn day in the calendar. But we're going to look at a very important day. And in fact, when I come back in two weeks, it's going to be that important day. It's going to be Hoshana Rabbah. That's all you're going to hear about it tonight. And then the following week, I'm going to talk about Yeshua in the prophets, uh, both the Messianic prophecies and also tra uh, prophecies that traditional Jewish people foretell the coming of the Messiah, some of which y'all never even considered. Uh, we're going to look at also why most Jewish people don't think Yeshua has fulfilled those prophecies, those 500 so prophecies that you and I think he has. Um, and we're going to look at different ways that you might have an impact on the lives of Jewish people that God puts in your path. All right. And then finally, on my last week's schedule with you, I'm going to deal with the book of Revelation. Now, I've been preaching in churches for 25 years. For 24 of those, I would tell people, or 23 of those, I tell people, God loves me too much to make me a pastor. I was the guy that would blow in, blow up, and blow out. I traveled and I taught in every Bible-believing denomination of church in America. But a few years ago, God took me aside and says, I don't love you that much. 
So now I pastor a congregation. But in all my years of teaching, I never taught on the book of Revelation, not ever once, until last year when God compelled me to teach every verse, and I did over a nine-week period. So we're going to cover nine weeks of teaching in one session on my last time with you. But I sent some questions to your pastor that he's going to give you later on, but but we're going to answer some questions tonight, and so let's get started. Father, I just ask you to anoint me to speak your words tonight with clarity and love. Open our ears to hear what you have to say and change us by your word. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Bereshit, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. There was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, evening and morning, one day. Question number one, when does the day begin? Most of us grew up thinking day begins at sunrise. I mean, come Resurrection Sunday, what do you all do? Get up early. Sunrise service. Oh. All right. And we have these early morning prayer gatherings. Because the Bible says Yeshua got up a great while before day to pray. All right? But Genesis tells us that the day doesn't begin at sunrise. The day begins at sunset. If the day began at sunrise, then darkness would come out of light. And that's contrary to God's nature. If the day starts at sunset, then light comes out of darkness. That's God's lesson for us. All right? So the day begins at sunset. So if Yeshua went up a great while before Day before the sun, before the day started to pray. I figure two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon. That's a good time to pray. I'm all over that. That's six o'clock in the morning stuff. Oh, not me. Anyway, all right. Then in Genesis uh, one, starting in verse six, he talks about. Uh, he says, "Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and separate the waters." And and so he he created the the expanse he called heaven. There was evening and morning, a second day. And then in starting in verse nine through thirteen, he. he he uh, said, let the waters below the earth be gathered into a place. And let dry land appeared. And God called the dry land earth. And he called the water seas. And God saw it was good. And then God says, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants. And God saw it was good. There was evening and morning a third day. All right. God created the first day. Said it was good. Then he created the second day. And then he created the third day. And he said two things were good in the third day. Now, what's the first day of the week? Sunday, all right? So Sunday, God saw it was good. Tuesday, God found two things that were good. And then the rest of the week, every day, he created, he, he noticed that something was good. Did you notice that even God didn't find anything at all good with Monday? We should learn that lesson. Anyway, but all of creation happened just by God speaking and things were created. He was speaking evidently to himself because there's no other person involved until verse 26. It's not until verse 26 that we see, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in conversation. First thing he ever created in conversation was us. All right? That's very important. The rabbis tell us that before the earth was formed, three things existed. God himself, Hashem, God himself, all right? The Torah and the Messiah. Now, that's orthodox 
theology, three things existed. God, the Torah, and the Messiah. Who is God talking to? I believe the rabbis are right. I believe he was talking to the Messiah. And that point is uh, validated in the, in, in the Brit Hadashah, in the New Covenant, in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All right? Now, so, interesting point that John had access to that you probably... Anybody here ever heard of Targums? Targums were ancient Aramaic translations of Scripture. Because the lingua franca, the, the walk-around language of the day, was mostly Aramaic among the Jewish people in those days. And, and so, John would have been well-versed in the Targums. Now, the Aramaic Targums had some interesting aspects to it. One of them, look, God is not like us. Y'all know that? God is not like us. He's holy and we're not. God is, is untouchable by man. And so the, the, the Aramaic writers of the Targums, they created a word for the word, word. And that word is mamre. And the mamre has the capacity, it's a characteristic of God that has the capacity to interact with man and with the earthly plane, if you will. John would have been well familiar with that. That would have been his walk around, you know, like I've got four translations of the Bible on my Android, all right? John's Android translation would have been the Targums, all right? His walk around, carry it to church Bible would have been the Targums, the Aramaic translation. The Hebrew was used, you know, for prayer and in the synagogue, and it would have been used to read the Torah, but nothing else. Everything else would have been in the Aramaic. And so he was well familiar with this concept. And so in John 1, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God Himself. And that Word, that Mamre, that aspect of God that could touch man, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us, if you will. All right? Word became flesh. Let us make man in our image. God speaking to the Messiah, the aspect of Himself that was able to interact with mankind. Let's go back to the Torah. Genesis chapter 2, it says, By the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work He'd done. God blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. Finally, God established the Sabbath. Y'all know when the Sabbath is? Saturday. Now look, a lot of Messianic leaders and teachers come into churches and blast you guys for worshiping on the wrong day, for calling Him by the wrong name, for celebrating His birthday in the wrong month, you know. Let me tell you my view, all right? I figure that if indeed Yeshua is the Word who became flesh, if He is God indeed, that He's smart enough to know in the course of the last 2,000 years when you pray in Jesus' name who you're talking about. He knows you're talking about Yeshua, all right? He knows that. And I believe what the Bible says is true. He, he was resurrected on the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week? Sunday. 
If his resurrection doesn't give us good enough reason to come together and worship him, then, folks, we ought to stay home Saturday and Sunday and watch football. What a drag. All right. As far as celebrating his birth, y'all know that there is no way in the world that Jesus was born on December 25th. Y'all know that? Am I shaking up anybody yet? Am I okay, Pastor? You're not going to throw me out yet? Okay. All right. Let me tell you, the first time Carol and I went to Israel, our group, we took a group, and the group stayed 10 days, and she and I stayed a month, and we spent Christmas in Jerusalem. Well, on December 25th, we overlooked the shepherd's fields. The shepherd's fields, it's a steep hill between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and it's covered in ice. And if the shepherds were abiding in their field that night, they'd have been sliding down the hill. All right? But... When was Jesus born? Well, he came to tabernacle with us. He was born in a hut called a manger in Greek, all right? But in Hebrew, a hut for an animal in Greek is a manger. A hut for an animal in Hebrew is a sukkah, a booth, all right? You know when you dwell in booths? You know when you got booths built? Next Wednesday, a week from tonight, the reason I'm not going to be here is it's era Sukkot. It's the first night of Sukkot. It's the time we dwell in booths. It's highly likely... All right. That Yeshua was born sometime around this time of the year. All right. And I've got a whole teaching on it. You can go to my website. You can find it and read it. And it's in depth. All right. And it's called Away in a Sukkah. All right. You can go to my website. My cards are up here and you can find Away in a Sukkah. It's clever, but it goes. It's got a lot of detail about it. And it takes about three one hour messages to teach it. So go on my website and read it. But anyway. Yeah, it's on my card and there's a stack of them right here. But I'll tell you this. My birthday is November 13th. Don't make a note of that. But if you want to throw me a party in January or February, I'll come. What I'm excited about every Christmas, every year at the end of December, I publish, I teach a message to my synagogue. I tell my synagogue, don't go cut down your your mother's Christmas tree. I teach my people, and I do a message, and I send it out to everybody every single year. Look, I'm glad that the world is celebrating that Yeshua came as a real person and dwelt on the earth. He did, all right? And getting the right date is not what's important. When we go to Israel, and I want all... How many of y'all been to Israel? The rest of you repent, all right? The most important thing that I brought up here are brochures about our next trip to Israel. How many of y'all love this church? I don't care if you like the pastor. You love the church. More hands went up, all right? Let me tell you, the best thing you can do, not for your pastor... The best thing you can do for your church, for yourself, is get your pastor and his wife to Israel. It will change him and her. It will change this church. I've taken over 500 people to Israel. I've taken over 80 pastors. And every one of those pastors that lined up here today would tell you their church changed when they came back. So make that happen. Anyway. All right. But I don't know where I started. Um, Sabbath. God established at the creation of the world. Christians worship on Sunday. Muslims worship on Friday. By the way, this book on 30 days of praying through Ramadan. Ramadan ends at sundown tonight. I hope a lot of you were praying through this book. It's important to pray for Muslims. In Israel, there's a great revival going on among Jewish people. In Israel, there's a huge revival going on among Muslims. Huge. Now, Jewish people are hearing the word and coming to faith. Muslims are seeing visions. They're having dreams and visions and seeing Yeshua in their bedrooms and coming to faith. When Jewish Orthodox Jewish people come to faith in Yeshua, 
their family treats them like they're dead. When Muslims come to faith in Yeshua, their family kills them. But yet they're still coming. All right? So, Christians worship on Sunday, Jewish people on Saturday, Muslims on Friday, and Druze, which is an Arab religion that split off from Islam, they worship on Thursday. It's hard to get a full works week in Israel. But anyway, um, later in the book of Genesis, we see how the serpent deceived Eve and Eve deceived Adam, and then they hid themselves from God. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. Sometimes we try to hide from God. But, but God says, Adam, where are you? Don't you think God knew where Adam was? God wanted Adam to know where Adam was. All right. So he asked. Then later on in chapter 4, we see the account of Cain and Abel. Now, in, chap- in Genesis 4-8, most English translations expand upon this. But basically what it says in the Hebrew is this. Now, Cain spoke with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Hebrew doesn't tell us what they were speaking about. There was a conversation going on. And when the conversation ended, death entered. And that's a lesson we should all get a hold of. All right. Man was created in conversation. And as long as we can converse with one another, things are going on all right. It's when we stop talking to each other. That's where death rules. All right. In Genesis 7, we read the account of Noah. And we come to the second question. How many of each animal did Noah put in the ark? Two by two, right? We've learned that since we were this big, right? But it's not right. No, it's not right. Seven pair of every clean animal and one pair of every unclean animal. Now, that raises another interesting question. How did Noah know? The ark was filled about 750 years before God gave his Torah to Israel at Mount Sinai and established what animals would be clean and unclean. But what existed before the foundation of the world? God, Torah, and the Messiah. Noah had it in his spirit, what was clean and unclean. So he knew. All right. Then, extra credit question. Um, Why was the rainbow given? Why did God put a rainbow in the sky? Anybody? To remind us that he's not going to destroy the world with water, right? That's not what the Bible says. It's not to remind us. In Genesis 9, 14 and 15, it says, It will come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant. It's a reminder from God to himself. So that he'll remember his covenants, what the word says. It's not to remind us that he won't. It's to remind him. In case one day he just gets ticked off with us and says, that's it. Floods are coming again. Nope. Okay. All right, here's another one we get confused with. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now get this. Abraham's father had just died. And God tells him, hey, go to a land that I will show you. If y'all got a call from your pastor this week and he said, pack a bag, you're leaving in the morning. I'll pick you up, take you to the airport. What would be your first question? Where am I going? I mean, you need to know that to know what you're going to pack, right? Beach clothes or, you know, snow clothes. 
God just told Abraham, get up and go. Now, he just buried his father. But God tells him, leave your family. Leave everybody you know. Leave everything you're used to. Get up and go to a place I will show you. And Abraham immediately got up and went. In the Hebrew, though, it says, God says, get up and go for yourself to a place I will show you. So when your pastor calls and says, pack a bag, you're leaving in three hours. It's for your own good. That's what God told Abraham. So Abraham got up and went. All right. Then later on, it says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who curse, who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Now, interesting. It says the ones who bless you, I'll bless. And the one who curses you, I will curse. It doesn't say those who curse you. Those who bless you will get blessed. And the one who curses you. Who's the one who curses Abraham's descendant? Ishmael. Today, the Arab League, if you will. He said Satan, and that's true. But I believe it's a Satan manifest in a people. And yes, more than anything that we need to do, it's pray that God would bring confusion to Islam and bring him to faith. But in the meantime, God says he'll curse them. Anyway, all right. Now, in the last verse, the Hebrew is more clear than the English. In most English translations, the last verse in this, in this phrase says, And you, all the families of the earth, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we've already been told that, you know. In Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, right? But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. In the Hebrew, it says, In you, all the families of the earth may bless themselves. It's a choice. You have to choose. Are you going to be one who blesses Abraham? And his descendants? Or are you going to be one who curses Abraham and his descendants? The blessing isn't automatic. The blessing's a choice we must take. Preachers will say, and, and this came up the other night, I was talking to a group. People will say, the blood of the cross is all, it, all that matters. You know, his sacrifice is enough. His sacrifice is enough. No, it's not. His sacrifice does not redeem all mankind. It only redeems those who choose it. Who say, yes, that was for me. As long as you say, no, it's not for me. Then it isn't for you. The blessing that Abraham has available for all the families of the earth is available if we choose it. Through you, all the families of the earth may bless themselves. But we've got to choose. Here's another interesting verse. In Genesis 12, 8 and 9. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, still Abraham. And he pitched his tent with Bethel in the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Interesting. Because he pitched a tent and built an altar. You know... In our modern world, we're more likely to build our house than to worry about building a place to worship God. 
But Abraham's priority, he just pitched a tent. All right. And all throughout Genesis and Exodus, all throughout Abraham's life, you see that same thing happening. He pitches a tent and he builds an altar, an altar that will remain as a place to worship God. A tent is just for me, so it doesn't have to be anything special. You know, there are some people. I did a series. I, I, I taught about giving and tithing a little while back, and I got blasted by this guy by email who said, you're teaching wrong. The tithe is not taught in the New Testament. And I assured him it was. One of the places is is in this account we find first given in Genesis 14, uh, where Abraham uh, meets Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And uh, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, comes out and blesses him and says, Blessed be Abram. God most high, and God of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of all. Now, this account that is from Genesis is reiterated in Hebrews chapter 7. All right? But there's a little issue here. To whom did Abraham give his tithe? This guy named Melchizedek. Why would he? Well, Melchizedek, there was no man ever named Melchizedek. It's a made-up word. It was a word that was made up when the Hebrew Torah was translated into the Latin Septuagint. The first time that the Hebrew Torah was ever translated into a foreign language, it was translated by 70 rabbis into Latin, called the Septuagint, which means of the 70. And they took two Hebrew words, Melech, which means king, and Zadik, which means righteousness, and made Melchizedek. Kind of like Armageddon. Anybody know where Armageddon is? There's no such place. Har Megiddo, the Mount of Megiddo. Har Megiddo, when it was translated to Latin, became Armageddon. All right? Convenient, but a little inaccurate. So, to whom did Abraham pay his tithe? He paid it to the king of righteousness. And Melchizedek uh, is, is described as one with no genealogy, no beginning, no end. Who do, can you think of that we would notice as the king of righteousness who had no end and no beginning? Sounds like a manifestation of Yeshua to me. And if the Messiah existed from the beginning of the before the creation of the world. He shows up from time to time. We're going to see him a few more times tonight. In connection. Um, well. Genesis 18. The Lord appeared. Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting in the tent in the heat of the day. Now, this event happens three days after Abraham was circumcised. This was the most pain-filled day of his entire life. This man is sitting at the doorway of his tent, hurting, and he sees three strangers walking, and he runs to meet them. And to greet them and bring them to his tent. Alright? Hebrews 13.2 tells us to always offer hospitality to strangers because otherwise, he says, it says because others have um, entertained angels unaware. Abram goes and greets these three strangers, brings them to his tent. One of whom is identified as Hashem. The Lord, God himself, 
The other two were the angels that went down to Sodom the next day. All right? Now, an interesting little aside. Orthodox Jewish people can't even say the word cheeseburger. All right? They don't eat meat and dairy together. I've got Orthodox friends in Jerusalem. You know, they can't even say cheeseburger. But Abraham served curd, which is cheese, while he had a calf cooked, which he served. And in fact, in the Hebrew text, in Genesis, later in Genesis 18, it says he served them cheese and butter and the calf. I figure that, you know, if, if Abraham can serve meat and dairy to two angels and God himself, I can have a cheeseburger. Okay. Anyway, um, so God appeared to Abraham in the form of a stranger, in the form of a man. All right. Next question is, not on that topic, did Jacob limp all of his life after he wrestled the man or wrestled the angel at Jabbok? I've heard good preachers preach about wrestling with God changes you. It'll cause you to limp a little bit. All right? But in Genesis 32, we see the account. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, he's wrestling with this man. All right? And... and uh, When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, this man touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. All right? And like I say, many people teach that he limped forever after that. Wrestling with God will hurt you. But in Genesis 33, verse 18, most English translations, turn there if you got yours, and it says, Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. But that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, Jacob came Shalem to the city of Shechem. Shalem is a Hebrew word, and Shalem means perfect. It means complete, whole, without blemish. What it means is, when you get to the place God's prepared for you, you get there in perfect order. He made him perfect, all right? Now, I've been having this ongoing conversation with this Orthodox Jewish friend of mine who lives in Jerusalem about the Messiah. And he doesn't quite believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, and obviously I do. But my question to him is, look, if God can reveal himself to Abraham as a stranger, if God can reveal himself to Jacob as a man who wrestled with him all night, how come God couldn't reveal himself to a whole generation of people as the son of a carpenter from Nazareth? To which, so far, my friend Moshe has no answer. But it's an interesting question. Another interesting question. What was the sin that kept Moses out of the promised land? All right. Numbers, tw- Numbers chapter 20, verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation. Speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. Thus, sh- uh, You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation there be strength. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the people, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, he struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly. What was Moses' sin? He struck the rock? That's what I've always been told. I've I've heard preachers say, he struck the rock, and Jesus is the rock. You can't strike Jesus and get away with it. You can't strike Jesus and go to the promised land. Phooey. 
Moses had been striking that rock for 38 years at God's command. All right. Moses' sin was not striking the rock. Moses' sin was an attitude. Moses said, must we bring water forth from this rock? See, up until this time, Moses just struck the rock and water came forth. And everybody knew God did it. But this time, Moses wanted to take some credit. You can't take credit away from God, folks. That'll keep you out of the promise. All right. What is the commandment with a promise? Y'all teach your kids that, don't you? Honor your mother and your father that your days may be long in the earth. When I'm teaching kids, I tell them, now look, when we were raising our kids, I told them, look, this has two implications. The first is easy. If you don't honor your mother and your father, you're going to die young. But another one is, Hey, if you don't honor your mother and your father, your days are going to be short. You're going to bed at 6.30. We're going to shorten your days. All right. But honoring your mother and your father is literally the hardest commandment of all to to obey. Because it doesn't say honor your mother and your father while you're a little kid. All right. It says honor them forever. And some of y'all are old enough to have parents that are old enough that sometimes they're just not right. But you still got to honor them. Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. Don't go there. You still got to honor them, all right? So that your days may be long in the earth. I mean, maybe they're not in a position to make you go to bed at 630. But the promise of God is it'll prolong your days, all right? Now, that's the one everybody knows. But that's the hardest commandment to follow. What's the easiest commandment to follow? Anybody got any guesses? The easiest of all the commandments. Now, let me just tell you that the Ten Commandments, that's just a little bit of God's commandments. The rabbis have, have figured out there's 613 commandments in the Torah. All right? Now, we can't do them all now. Some of them can only be done in Israel. Some of them can only be done when there's a temple. Some of them are only done by men. Some are only done by women. Some are only done by priests. There's only about 279 of them that y'all can do. What's the easiest commandment in the Torah to do? You're going to like this one. Deuteronomy 22 starts in verse 6. If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way, in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. Certainly let the mother go, but the young you can take for yourself, in order that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. It has the same promise that the hardest commandment has. Now, the rabbis teach us that if the hardest commandment carries this promise and the easiest commandment carries the same promise, that every commandment of God carries the promise that obedience will prolong your days. God says of His Torah that if you will know it, honor it, and do it, God says that I will Love you, bless you, and prosper you. The Torah is a good thing. It's not burdensome as some would think. Torah is life. I am a Torah observant, Messianic Jewish rabbi. I'm Torah observant. That means I live according to God's Torah as best as I possibly can. Now guess what? I mess up. That's what grace is for. 
Grace is God's generous lenience, if you will. He doesn't strike me dead when I mess up. All right. But the, as best I can, I follow his Torah. I, I wear fringes on the four corners of my garment. All right. This is not an easy thing to do. They look kind of silly. You know, people ask me questions about them, but that's a good thing. You see, I'm a Messianic Jew. Now, what that means basically to most of y'all in the room is I'm a Jewish Christian. All right. But to a lot of people, I'm too Jewish for a lot of Christians and I'm too Christian for a lot of Jews. I'm kind of on the fringe, if you would. But that's a good thing. You see, God tells us in Scripture that we're to wear fringes on the corners of our garments to remind us of his commandments. That's my job. I'm to be the fringe that reminds you of his commandments. Now, when you see these fringes, right away you think about the commandments of God, right? Well, not unless you speak Hebrew. You see, the, the Hebrew word for fringes is tzitzit. And in Hebrew, we don't use numbers. Letters are also numbers. And if letters are numbers, then every word has a numeric value. All right? The numeric value of tzitzit is 600. There's eight strings and five sets of knots. Eight plus five is 13 plus 600. 613, that's how many commandments there are. Okay? So this is how I remind you of his commandments. I wear a cover on my head when I pray. And Christians say, oh, if you wear a cover, if you cover your head, it brings a, a, a curse. It brings a disgrace. Well, if you read that scripture, first of all, it was Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Now, in the time of Paul's writing, they'd never seen anything like this before. This happens after. This was not part of the dress. All right. What Paul was writing about, Corinth in those days made Las Vegas look like Disney World. It was a sin-filled city. Homosexuality. Men were dressing like women. Women dressing like men. And if you read the law from Deuteronomy that says a man shall not dress as a woman, for to do so brings an abomination, that's exactly the phrase that Paul uses. A man should not cover his head, for to do so brings an abomination. He was talking about men who draped their heads like women draped their heads. All right? He wasn't talking about this. This is a symbol of servanthood. All right? Servants wore them. Jewish men started wearing them to demonstrate that we're servants to God. I'm free to write here. And from here up, it's all him. I tell people laughingly that, you know, God has us wear these so he can find us and put his thumb on our heads and put us down when he needs to. You know, he can put us back in our place. Uh, what time are we supposed to be finished here? Oh, good. We've still got a few minutes. Um, I wear a necklace that people ask me about. It's a beautiful gold necklace that my wife bought me before we were in ministry. We had money. But, um, it, it says Chai, which is two Hebrew letters. The Hebrew word that means life. All right. But on this beautiful gold necklace, I've got a cheap piece of steel. It's a hex nut. Carol and I were in Jerusalem one Saturday night in May of 2001. In Jerusalem is where most of the Orthodox people in Israel live, either in Jerusalem or over in the neighborhood north of Tel Aviv. But in Jerusalem, on from Friday night until Saturday night, all the Orthodox kids, you know, they're, it's Shabbat. So on Shabbat, you can't smoke cigarettes, you can't talk on your cell phone, you can't hang out together. But Saturday night, as soon as it turns dark, used to be all the Orthodox kids would congregate at a place in the, in the new city called Ben Yehuda Street. Now, Ben Yehuda Street is an open-air shopping area. It's got stores and clubs and restaurants. 
And that's where the Orthodox kids would hang out. I mean, I used to take groups there just to look at them. It looks like Mardi Gras in black and white. You know, they're all dressed in black and white. They're all crammed up next to each other. They're all smoking a cigarette, got another one behind their ear, talking on one cell phone, another one on their belt. You know, they're very intense. Well, on one of these Saturday nights, two Muslim terrorists blew themselves up and killed 21 kids from 12 to 20 years old that night. We heard sirens go off. I went turned on the TV to see what was going on, and sure enough, they told us about it. The next day, I went downtown because I've got friends that own stores right there. One of my friends, all the windows had been blown out of his store. It happened right in front of his store. And he had double hands filled with shrapnel. Seventeen of the 20 kids, they weren't killed by the blast. They were killed by shrapnel. So I took this piece of steel out of his hand, and I put it on my necklace to remind me that death is that close to life. We need to always be focusing on what God wants us to do, akshav, right now. Don't put it off for later. There may not be a later. All right? There may not be a later. I brought some stuff. I brought some free stuff, cards and trip brochures, and some not-so-free stuff. The not-so-free stuff, starting at the far end, is a book called Arise, O Clan of Judah. We moved to Israel in 2000. I sat down in my office one day to write an outline of a book that God was putting on my heart to write. And uh, I sat there for 21 hours and wrote the book. Carol brought me food. I didn't get up except to go to the bathroom for 21 hours. I wrote the book. But basically, in Zechariah chapter uh, 12, God says, that uh, the, all the nations of the world are going to gather against Jerusalem and that the clan of Judah is going to intervene and rescue them. And I thought, Lord, that doesn't sound like you. I mean, Lord, when two and a half tribes wanted to stay outside the land, you made them go in and make sure everybody was okay before they could even separate. It's not like you to exalt one tribe over the other. Who are you talking about here? And I thought about it, and I dreamed about it, I prayed about it, and the Lord showed me. He said, look, the spies that went into the land from Ephraim went Joshua, the son of Nun, and from Judah went Caleb. And Caleb is described as the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Who are the Kenizzites? They're not one of the twelve tribes. No, actually, the Kenizzites lived in the land before God gave it to Abraham. So the Kenizzites were part of the people that had been captured by the Egyptians that were enslaved in Egypt. And when Israel was rescued out of Egypt, with them came a, quote, mixed multitude in Exodus 12. And that mixed multitude was folks just like you, Gentiles, that had seen the miracles of God through these plagues and said, hey, I'm going with you. And they went. So Caleb and his father, Jephunneh, probably were among those people who left Egypt and were wandering. Caleb wasn't Jewish at all. Caleb was a Gentile who had chosen to be a part of the people of Israel, like you. He was, if you will, Romans uh, uh, 12. He was grafted in, Romans 11. All right, He was grafted in like you have been. And so that clan of Judah that I think God talks about in Zechariah 12 isn't one of the 12 tribes. It's those of you who have been have chosen to become part of the people of Israel. And you are counted among the people of Israel, the Dam Yeshua, by the blood of Yeshua. You're grafted in 
in the place of Yeshua, who happens to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. So you are the tribe of Judah. And this is a book that explains how you are going to have a part in seeing Romans 11, 26 come to pass, or 24, all Israel shall be saved. That's about you. It's written by a guy named Moshe Cohen. That's my Hebrew name. This is a book called a Christian Haggadah. Haggadah is, is the order of service for Passover. I've led more Passover services for Christians than probably any man alive. Well over 400, close to 500 by now. I've been doing it for 25 years. I do a lot of them every year. Anyway, so this is how you can celebrate the Lord's Passover. You know, when Jesus said, as often as you do this, remember me, he wasn't talking about a little cracker and a piece of uh, of grape juice. He was talking about Passover, the whole Passover Seder. Every bit of it shows you more of him. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Anyway, that's what this is about. Then next to that is some anointing oil. Um, In Numbers chapter 30, verse 22, it says, Moreover, the Lord talked to Moses and told him to blend this anointing oil. Well, the word moreover in Hebrew, it means over and over. Well, while we were living in Israel, somebody asked me to find him, somebody who would blend anointing oil made according to the only recipe in the Bible from Exodus chapter 30. So I looked around, tried to find somebody who would make it. Everybody said the same thing. No way. Because it says in later in the verse, in the chapter, it says anyone who makes any like it and puts it on a layman shall be cut off from his people. Cut off from his people, that means you'll die. Nobody's willing to die to sell some oil. But the Lord kept beating on me to make this oil. I said, Lord, what do I do with that verse? He said, read it in Hebrew. I said, Lord, I don't read Hebrew. He said, read it in Hebrew. So I did. And actually, it, where we say layman, it's a Hebrew word, zur. You'd spell it Z-U-R. A zur is a layman, but it's an alien, a foreigner, someone who has been, uh, who is a murderer or an adulteress, someone who has been hated by the community and set outside the camp. God says, that's not you. You're not layman. You're my priest. You're a kingdom of priests. You're holy unto me. You're the righteousness of God and Messiah Yeshua. Make the oil. So I did. And we've been blending it now since 2001. And it's sold in Christian bookstores all over the country. Anyway, I've got a little bit of it there. Then next to that are some fabulous prints that I did not paint. They're they're lithographed. They're prints that an artist friend of mine who lives up in McKinney does. And he wanted to bless our ministry. So he made me a deal on these. So I'm able to offer you these prints for less money than he sells them for on his own website. All right. Um, and they're pictures of, of Israel. They're fabulous pictures of Israel. They're just lithographs. Now, standing up over here is a signed, numbered jacle, which is on um, museum quality, all cotton canvas. It's got more color than your eye can see. It's a signed and numbered limited edition artist proof print. It's a collectible item. And that's available too. And any of the smaller lithographs are also available in that format. For less money, you can buy them from him. Anyway, um, if y'all have any questions, now would be a good time to ask me. Oh, come on. Somebody. Did y'all sleep through the whole thing? Everybody slept? Okay. Father, thank you for this time you've given us for the opportunity that we've had to share your word. I just pray that whatever I've added to your message would fall to the ground like a stone and be blown away like dust, but that your word would be engraved on the hearts of your people. Lord God, that you would accomplish your will in and through us. Yeshua, amen.